Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm guest host Shona Thompson. New battery manufacturing plants are being announced daily across the U.S. and other parts of the globe. Does this mean that the EV revolution is passing Canada's auto manufacturing sector by? We'll find out. Following the alarming decline in student math results across Ontario, the government announced payouts to parents to help overcome the learning gap. But is this the best way to invest in our schools? and students after the pandemic. We'll also be speaking with Grant LaFleche, investigative journalist with the Hamilton Spectator, and we'll be talking about school board elections. They often fly under the radar, but are they becoming the battleground for a culture war? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Recently, EV batteries have been announced for construction. Plants for them, anyway, have been announced for construction in North America. One is a BMW plant in South Carolina. Audi's considering another similar operation. Mercedes has a plant that's also in the United States, and there are even more that are in the works. But with a dollar that's running at about 72 to 73 cents U.S., you have to start to wonder... Why isn't Canada being talked about for these plants and the jobs that go with? Joining us now is David Booth, who's an automotive columnist and senior writer for Driving.ca, and he's written a piece about this. Good morning. Good morning, Sean. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I was kind of surprised to see that, you know, everything seems to be going south of the 49th when there is are so many reasons why at least some of this should be happening north of the 49th. Yeah, um, there was, there have been some smaller plants and last, uh, within the last 12 months, uh, of course, Stellantis, formerly Chrysler, um, announced a plant in Windsor, but I suspect they're having second thoughts about that because of the uh, legislation that's been passed in the United States. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about that, because you would think that with the USMCA, that was the replacement for the free trade deal everything would be an even playing field, but that's not the case. Yeah, I would have thought it too, to be honest with you. Um, the, the, the legislation in question is called the Inflation Reduction Act. And initially, at least initially, um, Canadian governments and automakers were all rejoicing because what they did is they offered a total of $7,500 uh, U.S. Uh, consumer incentives just like um, the trudeau government offers five thousand dollars to anybody who buys a um electric car here in canada in the states it's 7500 us if you buy an electric vehicle and previously they had uh, tried to pass a law that said that that money to the consumer would only be if the car was made by union members in the united states so they changed that part of it, and now Canada's included. So if you build a car, an electric vehicle in uh, Oakville, for instance, and ship it to the States, um, the consumer who buys it um, still gets the $7,500 uh, rebate. So everybody rejoiced. Uh, they might have been rejoicing a little too soon because buried far deeper in the IRA, uh, was Section 45X, which basically, it's hard to describe the amounts of money involved, but gives a whole ton of money to automakers and battery manufacturers if they build the batteries only in the United States. Um, the monies involved, uh, and uh, pardon me for being technical, is about $45 a kilowatt hour, 
Um, for instance, a Hummer EV has 212 of those kilowatt hours. So you're looking at about $9,500 in the manufacturer's pocket, not in the consumer's pocket, if and only if you build that battery in the United States. So huge incentives going on there for manufacturers to place their plants in the United oh, States. Oh, huge. Um, I did all the numbers. And to be honest with you, I, I had a little bit of uh, trepidation writing the um uh, writing that article because the numbers seemed so truly outlandish that um, um, I, I just couldn't believe it could be written like this. And it was only after I got confirmation from some industry insiders who really didn't like the fact that I actually had the information um, that I wrote it with some confidence. Basically, a plant like the BMW plant um, that you mentioned uh, being built is going to build, I think, 30 gigawatt hours, and it's going to build uh, equal to about 300,000 EVs. And that plant alone will get something over a billion dollars in subsidies every year it's in operation until 2032. Not a one-time deal like, you know, to build the plant. It'll be a recurring, every year, $1 billion um, 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 uh, a subsidy. They're supposed to be up and running either 26 or 27, so they'll be able to run for five years so, uh, or six, but let's call it five. That's over five billion, closer to six billion dollars in subsidies, and the plant will only cost them 700 million. So it's a boondoggle. It's it's insane. I don't know what else to say. And w with money like that, I'm guessing it's going to be closer to 2025 rather than 2026. When you've got that kind of an incentive going, I mean, a billion dollars a year, you're going to have that plant up and running as soon as possible. How does any of this fly under the USMCA? I, I, I don't know. I, like, I, again, I'm just a mere lowly journalist who happened to uncover this. Um uh, I, I've read the entire IRA, and, and what's interesting is um, the legislation that talks about the consumer um, um, uh, subsidy I just mentioned is extremely well written, it's extremely specific, and it's already implemented. The part, the Section 45X, it's called the AM, AMPTC, Advanced Manufacturing uh, Production Credit, um, is extremely poorly written. It feels like it was written by a second-year law student and no professor um, checked his homework. You know, it's, it's, it's very vague and everything else. Uh, and it's not implemented until um, um, at the end of this year. So it is being, I suspect as we speak, it's being negotiated. I, I'm, I believe Doug Ford um, was down in Detroit um, trying to talk to the uh, the three manufacturers down there and also trying to uh, get Stellantis to recommit to the plant in Windsor because, you know, they're looking, you know, they got some good subsidies to build the plant, but they haven't got a recurring subsidy that will, you know, pay them, you know, half a billion, a billion dollars every year for the next eight to 10 years. So uh, how, how we attract those battery cell manufacturing plants and the battery module assembly plants um, it's going to be very difficult unless this can be negotiated um, I, 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 as it's written it's quite clear that um, um, Canada doesn't stand much of a chance to get 
uh, uh, those kind of plants here in Canada. So it, it sounds from what you're saying like this section of the Act that is poorly written as opposed to the other sections that seem to be um, a, a little bit better, that more more work went into them, um, that this was kind of shoved in under the wire at the last minute? Well, what I suspect happened, and this is, uh, since EVs has happened, I've watched, um, uh, and it specifically pertains to me, I've watched the crafting of laws. I mean, the first subsidy that the Trudeau government came up with with EVs was itself poorly crafted as well. Uh, it was obvious somebody didn't know what the price of an EV was when they set the limits of of the um, uh, prices of EVs that were eligible for for the uh, subsidies in Canada. In the States, as I said, it was called the Build Back Better Plan originally, and it was all crafted about, uh, with uh, clauses that required um, uh, union membership built in, in the States, and it was roundly condemned, roundly condemned. And so I suspect when they revised it for what's now called the Inflation Reduction Act, that part, the consumer uh, rebate part, had been so studied because of all the blowback that it, somebody paid attention, they put some good people on it, and they knew what they were talking about by that time, having dealt with all the blowback. The part about the manufacturing, they hadn't done before, as far as I know. And so it, I, I, I've, I've read the, uh, the, uh, uh, that portion of it. For instance, uh, the portion dealing with consumer rebates has got the word vehicle mentioned 200 times, at least. In the Advanced uh, Manufacturing uh, Production Act, vehicles are mentioned once just once hmm. ah and yet uh, every single automaker i've talked to is is uh, taking this as very real i found nobody that's dismissing this all that this isn't going to apply to cars or or anything else so it, it, it it's <laughs> i hate to say it but the more i delve into government work w with respect to automobiles the more I see the reason why people get so mad at governments. Yeah, certainly. And and bless you for going through that with a fine-tooth comb. It sounds like it was a, a pretty I, I, difficult it, it, task. It, it, uh, well, I mean, the good part about it is I only read, well, I read obviously the two automotive sections and other sections which I, I thought might have pertained uh, peripherally. Uh, it's 732 pages long. Uh, and and as I say, parts of it are extremely poorly crafted and 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 confusing. So I I I, I won't claim to have read it all. I'm still sane. I still can speak the English language. Uh, I don't think I could have done that if I'd read every word in that in that document. Well, your insomnia is cured, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. But uh, it leads me to wonder about a few other things because Canada is a major leader. Yeah in uh, the production of rare earth metals. We have a lot of those raw materials here. Aren't they needed for these batteries? Oh, God. Is, is there and, leverage and, and, we have? And that, okay, and, and, and uh, that is the complication, okay? Um, that is a feather in our cap. And if you don't mind a somewhat convoluted explanation, and I apologize to your, uh, to your listeners already, the consumer part of this, uh, thing the 7500 the consumer incentives talk about 
being eligible for that if the minerals are processed in North America. In other words, that portion, the consumer portion, really adheres to US, uh, as USMCA, actually called CUSMA now, C-U-S-M-C-A. Anyways, um, they, uh, and so from that point of view, it's a real benefic- benefit to Canada. America doesn't have any enough minerals. They need our minerals. We've got them. We've got clean electricity. My take on this is that uh, Minister Champagne, uh, who's in charge of innovation, science and industry in Canada, and I've got to admit, is one of the smartest politicians I've ever met, um, is trying to create a minds to mobility. In other words, you know, because we have the mines and because we have the electricity, his initial plan was you'll mine it here. Why not process it here? And if you're processing it here, why don't you just build the battery plants here? You know, and 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 from from um, you know the uh, cloud level, that makes a lot of sense. But with this battery uh, incentive in the states, I think what's really going to happen is that we'll mine it, we may process it, we may build some battery components, but we're going to send the min- the minerals down to the states, and they're going to build the batteries there. Um, I mean, they could ship some of the battery cells back to Canada for like Oakville, which is supposed to build four EVs, but that would seem a lot of trouble because the issue with shipping batteries and their modules around is that they're very heavy. The battery in a on a GMC Hummer weighs 2,900 pounds. It actually wears, the battery in a Hummer weighs more than a Honda Civic complete. So it's not something you ship around easy. Now that's the entire component. There's individual cells there you could ostensibly collect the money in the states if you did the minerals here, shipped them to the states, built the cells there, collect the money for that, and then ship the cells back to Canada to be manufactured in batteries. But I think that anybody listening now can understand how convoluted that would be. It's just a lot easier to just, once the minerals are down there, just finish everything down there. Hmm. So there wouldn't necessarily be any leverage for Canada in saying, hey, we got the stuff you need. You're going to put some of those jobs here. I, I think we're going to get some, uh, as I said, I think we're definitely going to get some mineral, uh, the mineral activity. We're already seeing it. We've got some. Um, we're, we're part of the Kuzma, as I said, and that fits in with the consumer, um, um, the consumer uh, uh, rebate portion of the deal. And a lot of those minerals are going out of the States. I suspect that we can make a very, very, very good argument that we should process the materials here. We have clean electricity, which is all part of the, the zero, uh, zero emissions um, um, mandates. And so, and shipping the processed materials to the States would be a lot easier than shipping the um, raw materials. You know, there's a lot, a lot of wastage there. After that, I suspect we might, like GM started a cathode material plant in Baconcourt um, um, uh, recently, or is starting one, and that thing isn't covered in the battery cell manufacturing um, um, subsidy that I mentioned earlier. So you can build that individual component there. But the grand scale of assembling the battery and assembling the car 
uh, I suspect because of the way this part of the legislation is written, it, unless it's rewritten, it, there's a many people are pissed at this. Um, South Korea's mad. All of Europe's mad. They're talking about what you talked about earlier about um, unfair trade practices. Uh, think about this for a moment. If a car's battery was built in the States and say it was 100 kilowatt hours, it would come up to Canada with the manufacturer getting about 4,500 US dollars. So $6,000 directly to the manufacturer. And then once it gets here and we, it's sold to a consumer, the federal government would pay a $5,000 subsidy to the, uh, to the consumer um, for buying that car that was specifically made in the States instead of Canada. Because when you go through all the machinations, um, this is this battery um, um, uh, subsidization directly to the manufacturers is in effect directly aimed at Canada yeah. um, because of the Kuzma thing. I mean, ma um, Mexico really isn't that big. I, I know Musk has announced something recently, but Mexico isn't nearly as well placed to take battery manufacturing away from the States yeah. as we are. Mm -hmm. And so we're the only three in, in, in the Kuzma thing. So when you see that, um, that battery subsidy, I think it's inadvertent. I think the people that wrote it were just thinking, oh, pro-America. But they don't realize that the one person that the one country that really stands to lose the most is Canada. Is Canada. Yeah, and devil's, the devil's really in the details here. David, thank you I'm, so much for wading through all of this and bringing it to our attention. No doubt we'll be talking more about that as uh, the days, weeks, and months uh, continue on. David is an automotive columnist and senior writer for Driving.ca. We've been talking about EV battery plants and why they're uh, popping up in the United States but not here in Canada. Thanks for your time, David. Thank you very much for uh, having me, and I'm sorry for all the complications. <laughs> It's not your fault. <laughs> You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to be talking about those payments that are coming from the Ontario government. A school-aged children with payments of up to $200 per child, 250 if the child has special needs. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says the money is intended for tutoring or technology supports, but really... Parents can use it how they want. This direct payment to, to parents will help families offset the rising costs of living so that moms and dads can best support their kids. It's going to take all of us to get kids back on track. Parents, educators, government working together. He's framing the payments as help for tutoring supports or for children to catch up from the pandemic. We all know how challenging COVID was on people across the province, but it impacted nearly every part of our lives but few people felt those impacts more than Ontario students. But is this the best way to use that money? Ricardo Tranjan is with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He's just written a piece about this for the Toronto Star. Ricardo, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I, I have to admit, when this story broke and I, I went on social media, I saw a lot of people framing this particular amount of money in a different light saying that it was more of a bribe for parents. Well, if it's a bribe or not, um, what I can tell from, from my research is just that it's not the best use of money. Um, there is a lot of 
more bang for our buck that we can get uh, if we spend this money in other ways, um, especially if we're focused on uh, questions of literacy and math acquisition that we are worried that the kids are falling behind. There's very specific things that we can do with that money that would give a boost to the kids um, that would um, cost the same or less, and it would put less burden on the parents, too. I'm trying to have to figure out that on their own um, and let the schools do it for us. Well, $200 per child or $250 if it's a child with special needs. You know, that doesn't sound like a lot of money per person or per student, but you put that all together and multiply it out over all of the students that are in the system in Ontario, that comes out to a really big chunk of change. Yes, the government is estimating that they're going to spend $365 million on this uh, measure. And in a report that we published um, earlier this year, we talked about a number of different things that we could do to help the kids to catch up because it is not news that the kids um, need some sort of support, right? Like researchers like myself and but others too have documented this starting last year at the very least. Um, so we documented a number of things and we modeled, we did some economic, we using our economic tricks and quantitative data and all of that and, and focused on on especially the, the kids from, from kindergarten and in grades for one to three. Um, those, with the same amount of money, we could increase the number of in-classroom supports. We could have essentially more teachers in the classroom. Um, as we know, there's the teacher that is there full-time, but the teacher gets support, right, from assistants, from consultants, for special teachers for this and for this, for the different activities. But these additional teachers, um, they spread really thin these days. With this money, one of the things that we could do is to have them more, um, more time in the classroom helping exactly uh, the kids who are falling behind math or the kids who are falling behind literacy, having some extracurricular um, activities right there, or tutoring all of this. We could do, with the same amount of money, we could do that in the classroom, and, and many of us think that's a better approach. So uh, are you saying that it would cost the $365 million just to do that one section? Yes, we could do, with $360 million, we could increase the number of, ki- uh, of teaching assistants um, that are in grade one for three, uh, to three. We could also do the same thing for um, kindergarten, and we could increase the salaries for ECs. The, 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 we have a pretty big problem right now with retention of, of early educators' childhood in the kindergarten system because it doesn't pay that well. It's a really hard job to have, you know, that many kids all day, um, especially with health concerns because, you know, kids get sick and uh, they bring that to the classroom and the teachers get that. So it, it's hard to attract people to that position. Right now it's hard work. It's health. It's intense on your health and it's not really well paid. So we could do all of that. But to be frank, that would be money that we would spend every year and not just a one-off, right? Because what they got, that, that's the difference. The government right now is doing this as a one-off. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's less a researcher in me, more the parent in me that says, well, with kids, nothing's a one-off, right? It's day after day, it's month after month, year after year. You can't just, you know, give kids two or three hours of tutoring and say, off you go. It takes more than that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you also uh, broke down some numbers in some other ways that I thought were pretty interesting. Um, there's $130 million. Uh, what could the government do with that kind of money? With $130 million. Uh, so I think that's the number that refers mostly to in-classroom support, right? Yes. Different kinds of in-classroom support. Um, so 
as I mentioned, there is the teacher who is there and is your, your kid's teacher. Um, but throughout the week, um, they get some, um, be it um, a teaching assistant who's going to come for a few hours and is going to help the kids who are falling behind, be a special teacher, a special subject teacher, and that you could have the music teacher or you can have a, a, an arts teacher or you can have... Um, like some, some extracurricular activity regarding sports or so on and so forth. There's a bunch of things that happen in the classroom that you can bring on those teachers. Um, sometimes you also um, bring um, librarian, teacher librarians, right? Um, people who grew up in Ontario uh, probably remember once upon a time there was a very common role in schools. We had a teacher librarian, someone who played a really important role in taking the kids to the library and spending a lot of time just around books and learning and having fun and enjoying literacy as, as a world of discoveries and so on and so forth. Um, these positions became really, really rare. When you do crack, when, you, when we track the numbers right now, when we crunch the numbers right now, we see there's one teacher librarian for like a number of schools, which means that the library is sometimes open just for half a day a week and all the kids have to get in there. So your kid gets, you know, half an hour in the library because then it's the next class and the next class, and that teacher librarian's in a different school the next day. So one of the things we could do is to bring back that role. Again, if your concern is literacy, that's a, an excellent way of spending money, right? Yeah, I, I remember uh, my grade school uh, teacher librarian, Miss Jocula. She was uh, she was a wonderful teacher, and there are so many other teachers that, frankly, I don't remember as well. Uh, but <laughs> she opened me up to a world of reading, and I, I think that's, uh, that's a really important springboard for a lot of kids. Yes, and, and, and it speaks to some of the aspects of, of, the, of the deprivation that the kids went through um, the COVID, right? The social aspects, the learning together, the being in a room full of, you know, things that are uh, stimulating and that are related to learning and knowledge and development. And some of those kids, uh, some of our kids are, are fortunate to have that kind of environment at home. Um, so, they have, you know, the parents have big libraries and, and they read every night and so on and so forth, and that's amazing. Um, but a lot of the kids in Ontario do not have that kind of stimulating environment at home. And they used to get that at school. And then for two years, they didn't get that. And so the gap between those who get it at home and those who don't get it at home increases, right? Because that in time, that in school time is a huge, uh, has a huge impact in, in sort of bridging the socioeconomic gaps, right? And they have like really increased during COVID. So yeah, the digital librarian, the library has a huge important role to play in sort of stimulating kids and helping them to not only acquire this kind of technical literacy, uh, but you know, the overall positive stimuli of knowledge and, 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 and learn and love for learning. We're speaking with Ricardo Tranyan, who is with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, and he did an article recently that appeared in the Toronto Star about ways in which the $365 million in one-time non-targeted $200 payouts to parents across the province could be spent by the Ontario Ministry of Education instead. And one of those areas that you suggest is uh, hiking the uh, the pay for early childhood educators. Yes, so um, that profession is, as anyone knows, <laughs> anyone who has kids would know really well, or, and even those who don't, um, it's a hard work, right? So early childhood educators, they are uh, either in daycares or they are in kindergarten, and they work with a large number of kids, and that's very crucial initial introduction to, to their school lives. 
um, we were just speaking about socioeconomic kind of gaps. At that age, there's a lot of gaps in development uh, that uh, kindergarten kind of deals with because, again, some kids came from very stimulating environments. Others had less opportunity at home. So, as I mean, I don't need to preach for, for the importance of, 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 of daycares or or, or um or kindergartens, we, we know, we appreciate today how important they are. But then we have to think about people, the people doing that work. And then right now, um, there's a lot of people doing their work for $16 an hour. And um, so to be in a room taking care of anything from 14 to 23 kids um, and um, being constantly exposed to all of the, um, the viruses that go around um, that kind of environment, not only COVID, other occasional flu, flus and all of that, um, and for them, I would say it's it's not a very attracting um, place, uh, or career option, right? So to attract and to retain good people for that job, for those jobs, we need to, to increase the pay, especially in a time of, of really, really high inflation that we have right now, where food's getting so expensive. Um, so it would be, make sense to, to, to bring the, the salaries up so that they have a better floor, right? Well, and $16 an hour, which is just above the basic minimum wage in this province, uh, seems like uh, a low wage for somebody who has to go uh, and and at least have a college education and get a college diploma in order to be able to have that job. Yes, absolutely. Compared to other professions, it's very poorly paid by the kind of both the level of training um, and the level of responsibility that the job inquires and now more recently became a more aware also of the, the kind of the health impact that it can have on your health um and one problem is that we haven't dealt with you know we've been getting a lot better but we haven't completely dealt yet it's with the fact that it has been historically seen as a woman's jobs and 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 women's jobs traditionally women's jobs get paid less right then 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 you know if you look at professions that would be male dominated they had the same kind of requirement for training and the same kind of responsibility of the same kind of health hazards. Um, they would be traditionally, and if you compare and to this day, there will be a difference in pay. And then part of the problem is that we never completely dealt with it. We pay women less. That's what it kind of boils down to. Well, uh, you also suggest that uh, hiking that from $16 an hour up to $25 an hour would cost $110 million to do. Yes, and it's again, I think it's, it's, a, it's a worth investment. Um, we need to attract people to the profession, like child care, because of the, the federal program. Uh, the federal government has invested a lot of money in creating a national child care plan, uh, which means that the demand for child care um, will increase. Um, and ECs, they can choose to work in the public education system or they can choose to work in, 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 in child care centers. And child care centers are both private and, and public. So we are expecting a big expansion of child care offer. A lot of people who have um, any kind of informal arrangement or who go to home centers, there's going to be a huge incentive right now to put your child in a child care center uh, because the fees are subsidized and it's going to get much, much cheaper. So we're going to have to create those spaces physically. It might actually have the buildings there. But then after that, we need to put the people inside this to work, right? And so there's going to be an increased demand for that kind of professionals. And my fear is that if the public education system continues to pay um, so poorly and remunerate um, ECs so poorly, uh, few of them will want to stay 
uh, in the the childcare and the public school system, they will be drawn into uh, childcare or, or the private childcare. So, so our school system will 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 lose. So it's time to make that profession attractive. It's time time to get you know young people very excited about choosing that as a vocation. Go get the training that they need, and then come into the labor market um, and do that work for, which is essential for all of us because we need no one talking to. have two kids right now in school, so it's essential for all of us that that there's people that are take work and that they get fairly paid for it. Yeah, but I'm going to push back a little bit because if you're suggesting that it uh, raising the wage from 16 to 25 dollars an hour would cost 110 million, that would be an ongoing cost, and this is 365 million dollars in a one-time plan. Absolutely, yes, absolutely, and, and and that goes for everything that I said, right? All the things that I'm suggesting as alternative ways of spending the money, um, they would be ongoing costs as opposed to a one-time, um, one-time uh, measure. Um, but and so the cost is much more in the long run, absolutely. Um, but again, I think that's what that's the reality of of of, of raising children, right? Don't show up for Krishna's carrying a gift and then disappear for the rest of the year, right? You're there every day, day after day, month after month, and you, you know, until they're, you know, old enough and informed and they're on their own. And I think it's kind of fair to think about the education system the same way. If you give $200 to parents right now, they're going to have to go online at 10 o'clock at night after they clean the kitchen and prepare lunch for tomorrow and Google tutor for my kid and they're going to find, you know, Made the tutor for seventy dollars, um, and they an hour. Maybe they can buy two or three hours of that with the money they received three hours. Um, and then the kid gets that money, and what? What you know? What then? What after? Right. So the education system it's there every day. It's it's catering for every children. If some children don't need the tutor, they don't do it, and then we use the money for children who need it more. It, there's also kind of an equalizing impact. It's a thought-provoking piece, and I, I wanted to thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for an invitation, and thanks for having me. Okay. Ricardo Tranyan is with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, we've been talking about other ways that uh, that $200 per parent, 250 for kids with special needs, might be spent. Maybe more effective. Maybe more efficient. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a sector of local governance that gets overlooked all the time. But as it concerns your kids and what and how they learn, maybe you should be paying a little bit more attention to it. I know I do, but I'm a political nerd. I love this sort of thing. Advocacy groups have been raising some concerns about a number of candidates who are vying for school board trustee positions right across this country, saying a higher number than usual are spreading transphobic rhetoric or other discriminatory messages targeting the LGBTQ community. With a look at that, here's Brenda Molina-Navidad. Groups like the Canadian Anti-Hate Network says it's an increasing concern nationally as elections for trustees are taking place in several provinces. Education facilitator Hazel Woodrow says she's seeing more vocal and coordinated efforts among candidates pushing against policies that are designed to make schools more inclusive for trans kids. She says that while trustees can't change the curriculum, by setting budgets and board policies, they're still able to influence the school environment, which is directly linked to health outcomes. Some candidates singled out by the group say they're concerned about how gender issues are being managed at schools. Brenda Molina-Navidad, The Canadian Press. 
Well, that and other areas of interest have come under the gaze of Grant LaFleche, who's a spectator reporter. In a recent article he did, have school board elections become something of a culture war, he asks. He's joining us on the line now. Good to speak to you again, Grant. Hi, how are you doing this morning? Awesome. Um, I, yeah, as I mentioned off the top, I am a political nerd. I like finding out a lot of detail about who it is I could potentially be voting for and, and trying to make as informed a decision as I can. But school board elections are one thing that really seems to fly under the radar with a lot of people. In fact, uh, there was an email that I read yesterday from a listener who was saying, you know, if I just don't vote in that section of the ballot... Does my ballot still count or have I spoiled it? Um, the answer is it's still going to all of your other votes that you do cast will count. But why would you not want to vote for school board? You've identified your taxes to go there. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people don't vote for school board because they don't have kids in school um, and, or uh, in many cases because the school board simply doesn't generate the same kind of interest in the press and in the public. You know, the mayor's race, for instance, I mean, if you watched last night's mayor's race, uh, particularly the sort of head to head between Miss um, Horwath and Mr. Loomis, uh, I mean, that gets everybody's attention, right? School board races do not. And so who is running and what those people actually believe and what they want to do tends to fly under the radar, even though school boards uh, are often a stepping stone for people who have an interest in running for you know higher office later on. Well, yeah, in your article, you point out uh, Mike Harris got his start there, Kathleen Wynne got her start there, as well as Kim Campbell. And uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, as it turns out. With just the little old school board. Why are school boards important? I mean, what goes on there that people should be paying more attention um, uh, to who it is that's going to go on there and what their views might be? So one of the other problems, I think, when it comes to school board elections is that people don't necessarily know what it is the school boards do. There is a thought, uh, and we can come to this in a minute, that if you're on the school board, you set the school curriculum and you negotiate with teachers and you can do all these sorts of things as a trustee. Um, You really can't. Uh, The powers of school boards have been stripped uh, sort of piecemeal over uh, several years. Their primary responsibility is uh, the local local school budgets, um, schools opening and closing, infrastructure, that sort of thing. Uh, But they don't actually set curriculum. Now, that said, if you have a dysfunctional board, if you have a board that's, say, riven by political disputes and they can't get anything done, uh, you could sort of paralyze the functioning of the board to perform what functions it does have, which are still important functions. They just don't decide you know, which books uh, students are going to be reading. Well, in the last term, just in the uh, the Hamilton-Wentworth uh, District School Board, uh, there was a little bit of controversy over masking and that uh, they were going to go ahead, even though there was a, uh, a provincial requirement dropping the masking mandate, they wanted to go ahead anyway. I mean, that was that was kind of surprising and certainly gained a lot of attention. They did, and and you will recall that the school boards that made that kind of stance, um, the provincial minister, uh, Lecce, he came down pretty hard on them and said, no, we're not going to let you do this, which shows you the practical limitations of school board uh, powers. They could certainly um, attempt to do something like that, but they can be overridden with the snap of the fingers by the the education minister. Um, 
not that the kind of candidates that I've been writing about seem to be aware of that. I mean, they have a very particular agenda that is outside of the bounds of what a school board actually does. Um, in your article, you point out that there were 29 trustee hopefuls that were being endorsed as freedom candidates. Um, and and that is, that's kind of interesting as to why um, the organizations that would be offering this kind of endorsement are focusing on that level. It is, and there's a couple of reasons why that seems to be so. And the, I guess the first caveat, though, that we should point out is that Although, you know, we were able to identify 20 candidates, that's sort of in the Hamilton, the immediate area, all the way down to uh, Niagara, um, not all of them accept those kind of endorsements. There were several uh, trustee candidates, all of whom got elected last night, who rejected, uh, well, not all of them, but most of them, uh, rejected those endorsements where there were some who wholeheartedly endorsed it. Like, for instance, if you were uh, a candidate who is vaccinated and, and has no problem with vaccines, but you didn't think people should be fired over a vaccine mandate uh, violation, you then pretty well automatically got endorsed by some of these groups. And those many of those types of trustees just didn't want that endorsement because they don't also fall in line with their so-called anti-woke, you know, sort of trans panic um, politics. Why they're focusing on the school board seems to be for uh, potentially for one of two reasons. I mean, they are sort of a priori committed to this idea that that there is a grand conspiracy to harm children in schools. And this is what gets labeled the trans panic there. You know, when you look at the protests, say, outside of the Trafalgar School in Oakville, they're carrying signs saying, you know, pedo no more and perverts out of the classroom, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this is essentially QAnon. Uh, this is an American thing that that some of the children are, are under constant assault. They need to be protected from by some grand nefarious uh, conspiracy. The, the other reason is that it is indeed a stepping stone to power. And if, if, you, if you are in that sort of networks, those freedom convoy networks, and you want to get elected in order to have your policies uh, enacted in, in, in some fashion, uh, it's much easier to get elected to a school board than it is a city council. Voter turnout tends to be much lower for the school boards. I haven't looked at last night's numbers, so I can't uh, say just yet. But they tend to be lower than they are for council. And the lower the voter turnout is, if you have a motivated group of people who are trying to get you elected, you can have an outsized, influ uh, outsized influence on that outcome. Whereas you couldn't do it yeah, where the voter turnout tends to be higher for something like mayor or city council. So it's, it's, it does represent a bit of like low hanging fruit for those networks to find a way to win an election because they've, they've effectively failed everywhere else. So are you suggesting that this might be some sort of a, a long, long-term long plan? I think there's definitely some of them who are playing the long game. I think some of them are ideologically, very powerfully ideologically driven. And so they truly think they have to get on the board to stop, you know, critical race theory, or they need to stop woke politics, as they would call it. Uh, but there are others who undoubtedly would see this as, a means to get elected where they couldn't get elected provincially, federally, or on a municipal council. Yeah, I have to uh, suggest that um, uh, there was one candidate in St. Catharines who was running for uh, Meriton Ward. Okay, so one of the wards in St. Catharines, uh, Rebecca Hahn, who was a PPC candidate. And I was thinking, yes. you know, well, if she tries to get elected to city council, is that a stepping stone for her? Is she now planning for the next federal election again? 
I mean, we did see if you if you look beyond school boards last night and you look at the municipal races again, let's just for, for our own sake, focus on sort of Hamilton down to uh, Niagara region. There were a whole bunch of people who would be considered freedom candidates like Miss Hahn. Uh, and a few others. And what was interesting about their election rhetoric is that they uh, largely dropped the kind of incendiary um, bellicose language that they were using when they were running for the PPC or for those who were running provincially for the new blue party uh, or, you know, the Ontario party or something. And they did try to present themselves as sort of just a nominal city council candidate. Um, and it didn't work. Uh, they large, all, almost all of them got defeated last night uh, on the council side of things. But to your question, do they see it as a stepping stone? I mean, very probably, because if you can get elected to city council, I mean, there's a lot of MPs and MPPs who start their political careers on city or regional councils. And then once they have name recognition, which means everything in local elections and even um, in federal provincial elections, they then have a way to say, look, I've been a public servant. I've been serving uh, on this party for, you know, or, or on this council for some time. So you can trust me when I jump up to run for the province uh, or or the feds. It just didn't work out. It didn't work out for Ms. Hahn, who came nowhere close again uh, last night. And it didn't work for several others who, who, including characters like Dave Bilsma, who's the mayor of West Lincoln, uh, who has been an active, active participant in uh, anti-vaccine, anti-mandate, uh, uh, you know, freedom convoy stuff in the last several years. And he got demolished uh, last night. Well, I was going to bring up Mr. Bilsma in this conversation because, A, it surprised me that he didn't win re-election as mayor of West Lincoln. Although, you know, he was so resoundly censured and bound by Niagara Regional Council that he pretty much had no no real position on any of the committees. He had no voting authority by the time, you know, the, the council term was up. Well, they had stripped it. You're right. They had stripped Mr. Bilsma of all of his powers. I mean, this is someone whose political career really uh, did kind of tank uh, early on. When he was first elected, he became the chair of the Niagara Peninsula Conservation Authority, which was a very beleaguered and controversy-riven uh, body for the previous four years, but he lost his chairmanship when it became clear that he doesn't believe climate change is real. And over the last two years, his combined behavior around vaccines, where he would say, you know, he wanted public health to include drinking orange juice as part of their COVID uh, messaging to the public, as if that does anything, it doesn't. Uh, he was calling residents of St. Uh, uh, at least one female resident of St. Catharines to ask her if her menstrual cycle had been negatively impacted by vaccines. He was part of the Ottawa convoy uh, when the occupation happened. So, you know, it, it, he, he just, his career kind of fell apart. And the real question in West Lincoln was, could he get reelected? Because that is a part of the province that tends to vote rather far right. Uh, and there was a whole slate of candidates who supported him, who if he and they had won last night, it did seem like they were gonna restore most of the powers that had been stripped from him. But at the end of the day, uh, it wasn't even close in, in West Lincoln. He, he got soundly beaten um, by a councillor who ran for mayor, and, and she will be in a couple of weeks the new mayor of West Lincoln. Yeah, there, there's another situation that I wanted to uh, ask your opinion about, and that's what happened in Cambridge. Um, and, and this gets back to the whole issue of school boards. 
Two names of candidates for the English separate school board in the Cambridge area, so that would be Waterloo. They were left off the ballot completely, and they're going to have to do something about that. I mean, I, I don't, I don't have a lot. I don't have a clear lane on on what happened there uh, at all. Uh, save to save to say that there were a number of there were a number of problems with voting machines that delayed. You know, in Hamilton, for instance, were delaying the votes last night. So if they were left out of the election improperly. One of the questions that has to be, does does that school board election get rerun almost as a by-election uh, if they were improperly left off the ballot? Yeah, I think they're kind of scrambling to figure out what's going to happen there. But I thank you so much for your time, Grant. I know we have to let you go, and I really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. Have a great morning. Grant LaFleche is uh, with the Hamilton Spectator, and he wrote an interesting article about uh, what might be happening under the radar with some of the other municipal election contests that have been going on, and maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to them and just keep an eye on the whole thing. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.